0: Think about this. In the direct mail industry, the difference between a multi-million dollar successful promotion and one that fails can be one-tenth or two-tenths of a percent, okay? So this really is a game of mathematics and measurement, but you're disappointed that you didn't get three percent. But don't worry about that. That is not an accurate rule. There's no answer to that. It all depends. It depends on your market. It depends on your message. It depends when the mailing hit. It depends on your offer, your price. It depends on the way they contact you so get that out of your head all I want you to look at are the results and you have a successful promotion you should be proud of because now you could get clients anywhere in the country by mailing this postcard you'll test it again but based on your first mailing you have a winning way to get clients automatically without you going out there calling and knocking on doors your postcard is knocking on the doors now we're just looking at your results I could look at your postcard and I I could look at the headline, I could look at the offer, I could look at how it was mailed, I could look at when it was mailed, and we could also look at your follow-up system with those clients. We could look at what you say when those first five clients call. What do you say on the phone? We could increase that response, probably double it, just with some simple changes. Hi, this is Michael Sinoff with HardToFindSeminars.com and Consulting Secrets. Here's another exclusive HMA training on how to conduct an opportunity analysis. This is actually a paid client who paid me $2,500 to take him through an opportunity analysis and to do a USP, project number one, for him. We've combined part of the USP and the opportunity analysis in this one hour call. Please listen in as I conduct the opportunity analysis analysis following along in the PDF that you have available to you. I hope you enjoy. Well, let's start. I'm going to take you through what we call an opportunity analysis, and feel free to interrupt me at any time. I'm just going to be asking you a lot of questions. What I do and what my company does is work with business owners, people like yourself, helping them maximize their marketing success. Most of our clients are small and medium-sized companies with sales under $5 million per year. Now, I work with a unique marketing approach. We look at all of your marketing assets, and we find ways to leverage and optimize your success from these assets you already have in place. But I try to leverage existing assets. You can often realize dramatic and profitable growth without having to invest a lot of money and make a lot of significant changes in your business operation. So I'd like to take you through this process and see where you are, where you're going, and how you're getting there and see if there might be some ways we can help your business grow. Does that make sense? That? Yeah. Okay. So you're probably wondering, even though we've negotiated an agreement, how I get paid. And I would tell you that I work strictly on a project-by-project basis. And depending on what we do, the fee is usually anywhere from $1,500 to $4,000 per project. Now, most of the businesses we work with fall into one or three different situations. And here are the different situations. Number one, they are doing okay but want to do better. Or two, they are stagnant and there's no growth, or three, they are declining. Tell me where you guys are now, Ryan.
1: We're doing okay. We're looking to do better. Right now, we're pretty much a break-even. Whatever we go beyond this will turn profitable for us.
0: Are you in a profitable situation or just a break-even business? Just breaking even. Just breaking even. And how long has it been like that?
1: It's been up and down. You've had this lab for three years? Actually, three, four months ago, we turned profits, but one large client dropped out just a month ago.
0: Okay, and that kind of hurt you?
1: Yeah. That's kind of put us right back to a break-even.
0: Okay, so you would like more growth. Yes. How much more growth would you like to see realistically?
1: We were thinking of, at the end of the year, we'd like to be at a run rate of $70,000 a month revenue.
0: And what are you at right now at your break-even? I'm, we're
1: still below 40000 Can I say you're right at about
0: 40000 for numbers?
1: Uh, I would say about $37,000.
0: So let's say it's thirty-five thousand. So if we can double your business, you can be at a nice profitable situation. Do you have an idea of the margins of your business? Is there a standard markup on lab technician services for dentists? We pretty much maintain at around fifty percent gross margin. If something costs you a hundred bucks to produce, you're going to sell it for two hundred back to the dentist. Pretty much, yeah. Okay, so you just double the keystone it. Is that standard in the industry that you've seen?
1: I think it is standard, but what's not standard is the cost of it. We operate a little bit differently from other labs. Most of the traditional labs would produce most of the products in-house, and thereby jacking up the cost tremendously because, as you know, the labor situation, especially in the dental commission area, is pretty lacking. So what do you have
0: to pay labor to do this work for you? Are you doing it all yourself
1: right now? No, nope, I do have technicians. It vary in their degree of proficiency and different kinds of skills, obviously different levels of pay.
0: We're gonna get into all this. So let's talk about and this is something real important, your unique selling proposition, and we're gonna get a lot of this information as we go through this. Why should people do business with you? Give me a reason. Why should dentists do business with you? And first of all tell me, is your main customer base dentist? That's correct, yes. Okay, and are you working just geographically, or can you do lab work nationally?
1: Potentially we could certainly do lab work nationally. There's really not much stopping us from doing it, and there are other larger labs already doing it. But obviously for a particular dentist, if we can work locally and be able to support him locally, that would be just one added benefit.
0: Okay. Why should a dentist do business with you? If you were at a party or whatever and you met a dentist in your local area and you guys were talking and he found out you were a lab and he said, well, I'm always looking for lab people, but what makes you different from the other people locally? Why should I use you? What would you tell him at this point? Well, I would
1: tell him we go beyond manufacturing product. We look for opportunities to save doctors' chair time. And chair time is usually what's the most, not the product. Is this
0: something unique that other labs aren't really incorporating in their business?
1: I wouldn't say it's unique. I would say traditionally most of the lab will focus on manufacturing the product. But once they talk the product over the fence, they don't really pay too much attention on how would dentists dentist install the product in the patient's mouth. Okay. Let's
0: talk about a specific example of something that your lab will produce for the dentist and tell me how you're going to save him chair time specifically with that item. Give me an example. Would this be related to a bridge or a crown or something?
1: Yes. Let's take a crown and bridge situation. We have a quasi system, we call it 3 by 39 by 40, meaning we check it in three-dimensional view, and we have 39 points of checklist On each one of your bridges or
0: crowns? Or all your products? On the crown and bridge specifically. Did you come up with this?
1: Yeah, I came up with it. When did you come up with this? About five months, I would say. What made you come up with this? Because I wanted to focus on the chair time aspect of it and not just the product.
0: Let's talk about what chair time means in dollars for a dentist. Let's say a guy was going to a mediocre lab, and the lab produced a crown for the dentist. How much chair time would an average skilled dentist take to put that in? And then let's talk about what that relates to money in his pocket in relation to chair time.
1: Okay. The issue with chair time there is going to be inconsistency. A lot of times you get a crown by luck, you did but a lot of times the crown needs to be adjusted somehow, and if the adjustment cannot fix the issue, the crown needs to be sent back to the lab and the patient needs to be rescheduled.
0: So that totally wastes that appointment and wastes another appointment in the future and time for getting the crown back to the lab. And also, you kick off the patient enough, he's going to leave. Yeah, okay, because you screwed up. Right. That's because of the lab not doing it right, correct? Let's say a typical ratio for a lab
1: fee versus doctor's revenue is about 8%. Well, if doctors charge $1,000 for a crown from their patient, that fee would typically be around 80 bucks. Therefore, if you save the doctor, let's say, $10 on the lab fee, and you waste the doctor 15 minutes trying to fit it or even cause the doctor to lose that patient, it's a much, much bigger deal.
0: Yeah, that doctor could have lost $1,000 because he lost an appointment in time and you can't get your time back.
1: Right. You cannot save the doctor enough by reducing the left seat. There's no way to do it.
0: So the most important thing a doctor has is his
1: appointment time. You could say the whole office, all the staff he hires, and things like that, all hinge upon his chair time. As long as he can fill the chair time and be productive about it, he makes money. If he waits chair time, the whole overhead is not paid for. It. So is this chair time issue, how
0: prevalent is this?
1: could be very, very bad. In typical situation, if we have a 5% rule, if a doctor is kicking back cases, 5% of the time it could become an alert issue. We need to look into the process, not only just our process, but his process also, to figure out what's wrong with the whole feeding issue and see if we can troubleshoot. A lot of times you involve education the doctor on how to do something like this to avoid further complications.
0: What would you think the national average would be? Any guess, being in the industry? As a percentage? Yeah, of bad-fitting crowns. Very hard to say. I don't think there's an honest measurement. This is not something people like to talk about. You've dealt with a wide variety of dentists, right, over the years? Yeah. So what do you see from your experience being in it for years? It's
1: a very wild variation. Some dentists barely return anything to us. I have a couple of dentists return almost 90%. 90. 90? 90%. It goes from one extreme to the other.
0: Is it subjective in the doctor's mind, or is it usually because it physically doesn't work? Is it more the fault of the lab?
1: I would give you a percentage. I would say 20% of the time I find that we did make a mistake. 80% of the time, it really depends on how the doctor did it.
0: Okay, so this made you come up with this 39-point checklist.
1: That's correct. Three by 39 by 40, meaning three-dimensional in 39 checkpoints and under 40 times magnification. The three-dimensional is from the technician's point of view, from a doctor's point of view, and from the patient's point of view. So we come from all angles to look at a particular case. As opposed to other labs, we'll only look at it from a technician's point of view. So if the technician looked at the case and say it looks fine to me, and toss it over to the doctor, and not thinking ahead, how would the doctor put this in patient's mouth? There may not be an insertion path, for example, or an angle for the doctor to put that crown in place. Then the doctor will have to start adjusting left and right, trying to do some experiments. And it's very difficult when the patient is numbed and you're doing it as a chair side because most of the doctor will become pretty nervous. There's a definite time window that you need to beat to get that done. If the patient's bleeding bleeding stop and things like that, then the doctor will start sweating.
0: So this checklist, you say it's from the patient's point of view, the doctor's point of view, and your point of view. But at what point is this all reviewed? Is it through the whole process from when they give you the lab work, during, and then after? How do you implement this system? We implement it from the intake. Let's do a case example. Let's say I'm coming into my dentist, Dr. Bob. He says, Mike, you need a crown. And then I say, okay, I need a crown. Take me through the process of the interaction between me, you, and the doctor. Okay.
1: The patient would not have any interaction with us other than the doctor take an impression after he prepped the teeth and ready to have the crown fabricated. He would take an impression and send it off.
0: Is this ever a problem for you, the quality of the impression and how they do the impressions? Does this cause problems for you? Yeah, absolutely.
1: This is a garbage in, garbage out situation. So if the doctor did not take a accurate impression, and there's a rule of reasons doctors wouldn't be able to take a good impression. Sometimes it's a skill issue. Sometimes it's just a patient gagging. And wouldn't allow the doctor to do a proper job. But regardless of what it was, the garbage in, we're going to produce garbage out for sure. So this looks like
0: a critical point in the whole process here. Yes. If this impression isn't done right, nothing's going to work. Nothing's going to work. Do you have any interaction in this point of the whole process, the impression? No. There's nothing you can do.
1: Well, there's probably something we could do is certainly try to educate the doctor on what kind of impression material, how long should it stay, things like that. Limited influence. A lot of this is also dependent on the doctor's skill.
0: But if he takes a wrong impression, let's say he has a problem with the patient, he knows the impression may not work, he's still going to take a chance and send it off to the lab, right?
1: Other times he does, yes. Most of the doctors would avoid recalling the patient, and they would try to force it through with the lab.
0: Can you identify when a bad impression comes in?
1: Some yes, some no. Some impressions come in, we could immediately tell that there's no insertion path. So what do you do? Well, first of all, we need to talk to the doctor and tell him that we have no insertion path and we need some guidance of what are the things we could do. And the doctor may agree that we could grind off here and grind off there for how much. Without opening the nerve channel, and the doctor needs to look at the x-ray to be able to tell us. Sometimes doctors don't take the time. You would just say, oh, do whatever you want to do. And then we have kind of got in between the rock and the heart. Place.
0: So you usually have to do it, cause you you it because you don't want to jeopardize
1: because you don't want to do because. So let's
0: say you get a bad impression. The doctor says do whatever. You do it and it doesn't work and it's rejected and it comes back. You don't get paid on that, do you?
1: A lot of times, obviously in the official language, we try to say we will charge at a discount rate to remake. But a lot of times, without a lot of finger pointing, it's not easy to decipher who did what wrong.
0: Okay. So who eats it? We ate it. You ate it
1: just to future business
0: So this sounds like a real big problem right here at the point of the impression.
1: I would say, yeah. There are several aspects of it. A good impression will allow us to do the things right the first time, and it has a tremendous impact. Obviously, eliminating a redo, that takes a big chunk of cost out of it. The other thing is patients tend to be a lot happier when you do things right the first time because they usually take off the work to go to the doctor and go through the pain of injection, grinding, everything.
0: Nothing's a big deal. I'm thinking some real focus on this between you and the doctors, something like what a bad impression is costing your practice and really outlining the reasons why this is really hurting his bottom line and just kind of making him aware of. I think this is something you should definitely focus on, but we'll get to that so now let's get to the 39-point check when we're using the example of me needing a crown, So they make the impression, and hopefully let's say it's a good impression, and then what happens?
1: All right, basically for technical things, we check in how good a fit it will be. Now does he mail the
0: impression to you through the mail, or do you pick it up?
1: We send the DHL, go in and pick up, or we have our own driver, we <laughs> stop by and pick up. And you do it the same day? No, next day.
0: Okay, so you'll go by these offices every day and pick up these impressions.
1: Right, and we'll arrive to our lab the next day. Alright, uh, and then what comes with the impression? Did
0: x-rays come with
1: it? No, it's just the impression. Sometimes you may have some stone models to help us, we call that study model, but before you prep it, what does it look like? And then we restore to that state.
0: Now, does he write an order?
1: Yes, he would write a prescription just like any other medical doctor would, and he would prescribe and say it is how he wants it.
0: Okay, is it hard to read his writing sometimes?
1: <laughs> Most of the time.
0: <laughs> is there a form that you can develop, a check form, that would make it easy for them to write that, a customized order form?
1: The prescription we have is actually fairly detailed in terms of checklist. Unfortunately, a lot of doctors don't bother going through the checklist. They just Whatever they want to write.
0: So what happens when you get one of those that you can't read? We
1: have to call the doctor, and a lot of times the doctor is not available right away, so you have to call back. So we play phone tag.
0: And the patient waits?
1: Well, the patient doesn't wait. The patient by that time is already.
0: In. Yeah, he is scheduled to come back.
1: Yeah, he's scheduled to come back, but we are now raising for the deadline.
0: What's a general deadline for something like this? Two weeks?
1: Yeah, or a little bit less than that, 10 days. But while we're asking these questions, a lot of times the doctor is not willing to postpone the appointment because that's the revenue.
0: Okay, got it. Do you have any ideas that can alleviate that phone tag and this error where the handwriting is really difficult to read? Any ideas on how your lab can solve this problem before it becomes a problem?
1: Not a whole lot. because doctors just scribble. All doctors do, not just dentists all doctors just scribble. And I think part of it is going to be our experience with the doctor. If we've seen enough of the scribble, we'll recognize it.
0: What if the doctor talked it into a recording or dictated the prescription as well as a written one, if he made it really easy and gave him an incentive, and then you could listen to the prescription as well as read it? Would that help you clarify what he... Yeah, that would help tremendously. I'm just thinking an idea. Doctors are interested in saving money, right? Oh, absolutely. If you can offer them a percentage discount, say a 2% discount, if they turn all their prescriptions in both in writing and audio and you provide them an 800 number to call where it won't cost them anything to read their prescription through the phone. And you give them the reasons why, number one, you'll save 2% on your bill or 1% or a half a percent. You outline the advantages of how it benefits them by doing this. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, I think that that would help us. I don't know how much incentive we need
0: to provide. Another thing is you could absolutely require it. If a doctor wants your skill and your professionalness, you know, you've got to stand up for yourself and come from a position of strong saying, look, we only work with top quality dentists and this is how we do it and here's the reasons why. So we have a new policy before any prescriptions are sent in. They must be sent in both audio and in writing. All they got to do is call an 800 number and talk it in. They can have their secretary do it if the secretary can read their writing. If you can't read something, you can listen to it and have the to check it again, so that alleviates the phone tag. you just got to be able to read the writing. That's right. Isn't that
1: the main problem? You can't read what he wrote? That's not necessarily the main problem. The main problem usually is doctor's preparation is not good enough for a correct fabrication the first time.
0: And when we say preparation, what do you mean? The written preparation?
1: The doctor will grind his teeth in order to accept a cap. That's the crown that we make. A lot of time, doctor will prep too conservative, not enough thickness, or in the case of a bridge, doctor will not prep it so that there's an insertion path, because in order to have an insertion path, that means all the edges need to be in parallel, or better, and a lot of time we find that there's, we call it undercut. And therefore, you can't insert it the way it is, and you need to modify the piece in the lab. But once you modify the piece in the lab, whatever you fabricate for is going to be different from what the patient has in the mouth. For when the doctor gets the crown and bridge back, he needs to modify the patient's teeth accordingly. And that's where the linkage may break because the doctor does not necessarily do exactly the same thing that we do in the lab.
0: So it sounds like you working with poor dentists is costing you a lot of frustration and headaches. Absolutely. And you're working with them because you need business. And if you had doctors knocking down your door, you could pick and choose the quality doctors, right? You've got to win on that. Okay, so we've got to increase your ability to get clients so you can pick and choose and stop working with terrible doctors that are wasting you money, wasting you time, wasting their patients' time. You need quality doctors who are doing work right from the first time, the yeah. proper impressions, the proper prep, and then that's going to make things go a lot smoother. Your quality work is right on par with a quality doctor. That makes for a nice relationship, right?
1: That is absolutely correct. And also, it's not a matter of doctor's skill only. The doctor needs to care. A lot of doctors just don't care.
0: They don't care about the patient. They don't care about lab work. So we're not going to try and solve all these doctors' problems because that's impossible. We need to solve your marketing problems so you can bring in more customers and pick and choose. Exactly. That makes sense to me but let's stick on with our example. So DHL will pick up the mold the next day. Let's say you can read the prescription, and now tell me how your checklist relates to where we're at now. Okay,
1: well, we look at the impression, and sometimes we pour out the, the stone model just to check that the manufacturability of it and also make sure we understand what the doctor really wants of the product. Once we understand it, then we will send it through the manufacturing process.
0: How long does it take to make it?
1: The actual counter bridge? Yeah. Okay, that also depends because we have our in-house process. We also work with other partners mm-hmm. to do it. If you if require sending out to somebody else to do certain steps, that will usually take about one week turnaround to come back to us.
0: You're sending some of your work out. Yeah,
1: and so the commitment to the doctor is
0: usually eight working days altogether. If there's no complication. What about your relationship with the people you're sending it out to? Is there a problem on that end or sending it back? There's some.
1: Um, there's a variety of people that we work with, some in New Jersey, some out of state,
0: and some in China. So you send some of it out, then where does your checklist come in?
1: It only applies when the product comes back here. Then we go through the quality check, continue with that 39 points. We check the margin fitness. We check the porcelain, the shade. That's where the remaining you know, the 39
0: points gets applied. Do you have these 39 points all written down? Yeah. We don't have to go through each one. I want you to read through them, though.
1: Yeah, we have that 39
0: points divided into three
1: perspective areas. Obviously, one would be the doctor's view, one will be the patient's view, one would be the technician's view. First thing is to check the type and material received if that's what you requested because sometimes the doctor may prescribe one thing and it gets done on a different material.
0: Okay, okay.
1: what's next? The next is uh, we've done the crown and bridge for all prep teeth because the doctor may prescribe and saying I only want to do two or three, but he also prepped four. At that time, we will need to check with the doctor. Did you miss something, or are we supposed to just ignore?
0: Are you checking that with the doctor by calling them? Yes. Is this only if you have a question? You don't do this every time, do you? No, only when we have a question. Okay. If the prescription is different from what he sent you. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead.
1: Then we check the margins fit because there's different way for doctors to prep the margin. So we want to check different kinds of margins are they fitting correctly and then we will check the occlusion. That means how does this particular restored teeth will interact with the the teeth. We also check the anatomy. You know that each teeth has a certain kind of curvature here and there, grooves during tertiary taste, and whether we have sufficient clearance Basically, all these interactions with other teeth. We also check in between two teeth how their contact, the contact sometimes the doctor wants it to be tight, some doctor wants it to be light, some wants broad, some wants it to be narrow. We also check whether the doctor wanted a removal button when he tries that crown on. If he wants to, we'll have to put it in somewhere. So these are just simple terms. Whether the doctor wanted a lingual collar, wanted he a neck collar, root form, embrasure, and then we go through and check the chair side concerns. I mean, what the doctor will have to go through to put this in, thinking ahead.
0: All right, tell me about that.
1: The first thing is, is there a clear insertion path? The insertion path is obstructed in any way. We need to attach a nose to kind of walk the doctor through what does he need to do. If it's implant, then we check whether there's an anti-rotation measure on the prep tooth, whether that's a groove, that's a flat, and whether we need to fabricate a placement jig to help the doctor fix the orientation and angle so that he doesn't have to do trial and error at the chair side, which tends to waste a lot of time. And also. Are all implant parts that the doctor sent us and all the implant tools that we need to give the doctor and the screws, are they all included in the case. Without that, the doctor may find the case missing parts here and you wasted a whole appointment there. If it's a veneer or jacket crown, have we done the etching in the back to allow the doctor to do proper bonding? You could say that this is the highlight of the chair concerns we have. For patients concerned, we are looking at the shade matching make sure it blends into the rest of the teeth so that it looks natural and not just sticking out. Because a lot of times if you restore it and you make it wider, which most of the people would think that's what they want to do. But in fact, if you put in a wider crown than the rest of the teeth, then it looks pretty fake. So we check the shape matching, and shade itself has some sub-areas that we look into, like incisal translucency, whether the stump shade is going to show through, or whether we're going to do some occlusal staining or not, because these are all trying to match back to the natural state. Also, we check the shape of the teeth, and we check whether the patient can beat normally the restoration, because the restoration is not only for eating and the look, it could in the speech. How does the glazing look and whether we polish all the areas. How can you
0: check the speech with the patient?
1: When you consider that you need to have a loud space for the air to pass through. Things like
0: that. All right, this is excellent stuff. What we've done in detail could be summed up into something very simple, that if you're at that cocktail party and that doctor asks why I should use you, this is very compelling. All the checklist and the care and the thoughtfulness that you've put in to make the lab and doctor relationship and patient relationship a smooth process, wouldn't a doctor be impressed if he heard all that?
1: I would think so, except you brought up a good point in if it's a
0: crappy doctor. But let me ask you, these things that we're talking about, does your staff and all your customers and prospects know about all this? I would say to look at the
1: checklist, I don't think they really need- embrace 100% of the intent. I mean, the business philosophy is probably not. It's not articulated.
0: Yeah. How do you get your clients right now?
1: We are going through a transitional period. In the past, I just kind of walked up the door and see if I can catch the doctors to speak to them. Obviously, it's not a very efficient process. On board, we have more uh, ability to come up with postcards, fast broadcasts, although I don't think we can do that anymore. That's why, I mean, at the stage of thinking of doing some copywriting to give it more potential information Mm out.
0: You used to go walk in. Let's say you got the doctor's attention. What would you basically say? Do you basically introduce yourself and say what?
1: I would ask him what kind of restoration do you prescribe the most and Mm -hmm. try to focus on that area. Mm -hmm. And then often that to other capabilities that we can also help them with. For example, a, a, usually a doctor go through several stages in their career development. The first thing to do for them is the, the traditional fill the cavity kind of thing, which uh, that doesn't really need any lab work. But once they go beyond that, they start starting to do Iron Bridge. They're going to start needing to work with lab. but that is still subjective to insurance coverage. A lot of their business will come from insurance, which is very labor-intensive, not a whole lot of profit. doctor will probably work with that for a couple of years and they get tired of it. They will start to think they need to get private patients, meaning people who pay out of pocket. And for those patients, their demand is going to be a lot higher in the cosmetic area, a more sophisticated kind of restoration.
0: So real high-end cosmetic dentistry is private practice, private patients, not insurance?
1: Absolutely. Would you ideally rather be working
0: with those? Oh, absolutely. We're shooting
1: towards people who want to do implants and also people who want to do high-end cosmetic cases. And I think a lot of consumers these days are, are also exposed to TV shows like the screen makeover, and they got excited. They go to the doctor.
0: So in the past, working with these insurance dentists or the ones who are doing the crown and bridge work based on insurance, you want the evolved doctor, private practice, does excellent work. That's who you want to work with.
1: That's who I want to work with and charge the
0: premium. Yeah, okay. So we've talked about just one unique thing that separates you or your lab probably from most other labs. Now, you may have labs all over the country who do a process, a checklist, mentally, but is never committed to putting it down and never expressed it to the potential dentist.
1: So That's true. I would say 90% of the lab out there probably don't even have a checklist. They probably don't even have a...
0: Now, do you see how what we express, if we could express this, this is just one reason. This could be the main reason, your main unique selling proposition to a high-end cosmetic dentist, why they should use you compared to anyone else. But do you see how articulating that to the dentist could give them more reasons why they should use you rather than just being another lab?
1: I would say depending on what kind of doctor you work with, insurance doctors are very
0: sensitive to pricing. Okay, well, that's insurance. But if we want to look towards getting out of that and working with the private practice ones, maybe on a national basis rather than just local, maybe start local if there's enough of a market, but certainly there's nothing stopping you from working national or international. For it, yeah. You really have an international market for what you do as long as DHL and UPS is still working, right? right? So start thinking international and national because that is a potential. You've got a tremendous market, and if you focus high. But this is really important. Even if there were other dentists who had checklists but never articulated it, and you were the lab that made sure that any dentist who came in contact with you, you were the one that articulated your 39-point checklist and no one else did, you would kind of preempt the market. Everyone else, if they started doing it, would be copycats, you see? I think you're
1: right. I think we put this together. We really never convey that to doctors that much. We just kind of do it in-house.
0: When you have talents and things that you're doing that may seem ordinary to you or just part of the process, no one's going to know about it unless you articulate it and tell them about it. And once you tell them about it, even though maybe it would be some standard in the lab field, by letting the doctors know about it, it becomes a unique thing to them because they're a dentist, they're not a lab. That's one thing, your 39-point checklist. What about you yourself, your experience as a lab owner or your technician's experience? Tell me, are you guys really good at what you do?
1: I would say, obviously, the skill needs to be constantly upgraded. The products we're doing right now, we're pretty good in terms of quality, although I would think we need to articulate in that area a little bit more, too.
0: So the products? Yeah. You mean your work? Yeah. Okay. Where's the most money for you? Crown, bridge, what? Brown and Bridge and implant. Implant is actually the most money. Which one's the easiest and quickest and least expensive to do? Or all about the same?
1: Single crown, doesn't matter what kind.
0: A single crown? What's the
1: most common
0: out of all these?
1: Single crown or non-precious metal. All right,
0: and what can you make on that one? Dollar-wise? Yeah.
1: Gross margin, $60. Sales price will give me a gross margin of nearly $30. 30
0: bucks. that's it? What does the dentist charge for it?
1: Ten times that.
0: Ten times that.
1: Yeah, ten times. Of, so, me, minimum you would charge $650. A lot of doctors would charge
0: $1,000. You told me from the beginning the lab cost is going to run about 10% of the retail?
1: I think more like 6 to 8% now.
0: And that's all across the board? Pretty much. Wow. <laughs> Not very much. Sounds like you guys got to get into dentistry. Yeah, I would say. So, that's the most common. And then, what's the second most common?
1: I would say three-unit bridge were probably the most common. Well, what do those
0: retail for?
1: We all go by unit. You just multiply by how many units. How many teeth? Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay, I mean, so how many units? And how much is it per unit? Right now, at a discount rate, we're starting at
0: 60. 60 a unit. Yeah. All right, so you got the bridge and crown. Anything else that's more prevalent and where there's more money?
1: you do veneers? Yeah. Oh, well, veneers, they count as one unit.
0: Okay, so you do those two? Oh
1: yeah, we do those two. And what are those a unit? $100.
0: What do you do least of? Veneers? if you totaled up the unit, if you're going to do veneer, you make it six or seven at a time or eight at a time, right?
1: It's not necessarily. Sometimes the doctors just want to do a couple of units. You don't see big cases all day long. You don't? No, although we like to. obviously, if one case has multiple units, the overhead of pickup, delivery, and all these paperwork gets diluted.
0: Okay, veneers, crowns, and bridges. So they're all sold by units. So they're between sixty okay. and hundred bucks. Okay, those are the main things you're doing the lab work on, correct? Right. Yes. Obviously,
1: we do have some dentures too, but the volume of that is nowhere near crowns and bridges right
0: now. Who in your lab is doing all the actual lab work? Are you doing any of it?
1: No, I'm not. We have technicians doing it. Also, we have a good portion of work we send to
0: China. You send some of
1: your work out to China? Mm-hmm. Like
0: what? Oh well, Cronin
1: Bridge, they do the bulk of the burnt work, like, you know, casting the coping, doing the opaque layers and things like that. In some cases they were just finished and sent to us and with we'll the QC, In some cases they were sent to us, they might finish and we have to continue the work.
0: And they charge you, how can you make any money on that if you're paying them to do work and then you're paying for overnight shipping to China and then, you know what I'm saying? Yeah,
1: well, their fee is a lot lower. Do you send a crown out to China, like a
0: single crown?
1: If we can bundle 20 units together, then we will, yeah. So are you sending most of your
0: stuff out or doing most of it there?
1: I would like to send most of the stuff out. Because you're just basically a broker. Well, I don't think that will work. I think what we got to add here, just being a broker is not going to cut it. I think doctors will need a good amount of support.
0: Do your doctors know you send it out to China?
1: Most of them don't know. I think that's one of the sensitive areas. The doctors actually don't want to know that much about it. You're able to save time
0: and get some good work done by sending it out, right? Absolutely, yes. Are you able to do some good volume by sending it out?
1: Yeah. I would say right now we're about 80% of the work goes out. Are you Chinese yourself? Yes, I am. I born in Taiwan.
0: So you have contacts back there?
1: Yeah. The guy in China that I'm working with is a very good friend of mine. He's got a lot bigger shop than most of the labs in the U.S. I think most of the labs in the U.S. range from like two people to probably about like ten. His shop in China has 500
0: people. Where is it? Shanghai. The cost in China compared to the cost here for the work, what's the difference in price?
1: I would say you probably have to pay double here to do the same work. Do you know if there's a lot of
0: labs sending their stuff out to China, or do you think you're pretty unique?
1: I'm not unique. There's a lot of labs interested in doing it. Not a whole lot of them are successful because of the exporting, importing issue, tracking. It takes a pretty good amount of discipline to make it work. You have to make it work. It's not going to work by itself.
0: You have this system down, though, right? Yeah, we have a
1: very extensive tracking, instant communication, back and forth, the willingness from the partner labs to communicate with us, to work with us when there's technical difficulties. That's the vital part.
0: So you have a good support system back there?
1: Yeah, pretty good. I would say
0: probably one of the best. How many labs do you think in the country, Do you say 10% are doing this or maybe less?
1: I would say at
0: least 10%. Okay, but there's 90% of the small labs who don't know about this, right?
1: They may know about it, but there's no way for them to do something like this. Could you teach someone how to do this? I could, yeah. Very good. and I'm sure a lot of people out there will be. Well, you see, look,
0: there's only so much money. This is my marketing hat, okay? I'm just looking at the assets that you have in your business. You know, your real assets, now that we're talking, is what you're doing. You can keep this in mind. You know, you can make money as a lab technician, but you can make a fortune teaching other labs how to do what you're doing. Doing, how to work with China and cut their lab expenses in half. You know what I'm saying?
1: I was thinking of doing that as the next stage. Just like the gold rush thing, and the first wave go there and dig out gold nuggets. And there's the second wave, there's not much of gold nuggets left, so it's the you know, people who sell the methodology and the tools it's basically stuff makes money.
0: Yeah, you could create an entire training. I was
1: thinking of doing that as the next stage.
0: So you were. So
1: I wanted to build off the lab first. You want to build it
0: up first, okay?
1: I I only have one site right now. I have about seven people. but so I wanted to branch out to different locations, have a network of labs of my own. We have more outsourcing volume, and then we can leverage better, and then we can start teaching other people how do you build this stuff. But uh, right now I have like a half-fake story. It's not going to be very enticing for people who just started to look into the business. I can't really say that that's not successful yet.
0: This is the end of Part 1, please continue to the remaining section of the Opportunity Analysis with Ryan in Part 2.